City Network presenterar GDPR-podden. En podcast om den nya dataskyddsförordningen som ersätter den svenska personuppgiftslagen. Podden riktar sig till beslutsfattare, systemägare och administratörer som vill veta mer om den nya lagen och dess konsekvenser. Hej och välkomna till GDPR-podden. Idag har jag med mig Kim. Hej. Daniel. Hallå, hallå. Och idag ska vi prata lite grann om hur man bryggar gapet mellan tech och legal i GDPR. Dagens avsnitt kommer att vara på engelska för vi har med oss en expert i Karen Lawrence Ökvist. Hej! Karen har över 20 års erfarenhet inom informationssäkerhet och compliance och är grundare och vd för företaget Privacy. En startup som jobbar med just data- och integritetsskyddsfrågor. Okay, Karen, so first question for you. What are your thoughts on this new law, the GDPR? Okay, so basically, it is well overdue. Now, the the Swedish Data Protection Act, which is PUL, Persian Abgifts Law law again, is based upon the uh, Data Protection Directive from 95. Uh, It's a rather poor implementation of the directive, and we can take that later. But the directive, when it was created, was was created in a world that wasn't the world that we have today. Uh, We had computers, and some Some of them were connected to the internet, and Tim Berners-Lee had just created his WWW thing, um, but that was about it. Nowhere near where we are now, and the GDPR has been written as an upgrade to catch up with digitization, Internet of Things, Intelligent of Homes, and everything that we are today in that, not only is our personal data about our digital shadow, but we have become our digital shadow. Um, because our, if you actually have a look in the, there's a, there's a new regulation being built at the moment, and they actually talk about personal devices. And this e-privacy regulation is quite exciting, because where the GDPR misses out on how to do things. This regulation actually says how to do things. And it also talks about digital devices being an extension. It is a, it is a, an extension of our person. Um, so uh, it actually encompasses a lot of things. So it's not just the GDPR that's an upgrade on a law that was actually created in, well, it was a directive that was created in, in 95 and implemented at, as a law in every EU member state, but we're also having to upgrade all of the directives that were hooking into the um, into the old laws with new laws and new regulations to be upgraded for digitization and all this cool stuff that that basically our life is about nowadays. When we talk to people around in our business, we we get both sides of of, of the uh, of the sword, so to speak. Some say this is going to be the biggest change we've ever seen in terms of handling of, of privacy or a, a private data, PII data. And some say that they don't think anything is going to happen at all. Uh, they compare it to that millennium bug, essentially, that, you know, it, it was a lot of fuss about nothing. Uh, what, what's your what's your thoughts about that? Should we, should we, how concerned should we be? Well, firstly, you mentioned PII data, personal identifying information is an American term for personal data. In the regulation, the GDPR, personal data is any data that is linked directly or indirectly to a natural person, a living person. 
So it could be the name of your cat. Exactly. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I'm not really. Um, you know, it, it's, if you're an old woman and you have 10 cats, uh, then that basically targets you as a, as a victim maybe to be robbed or something, or maybe somebody that is a certain profile of person because you're living alone and you're isolated. So, you know, it, it's, you can have all sorts of personal data. You can have the GPS in your car and it's linked to your car, but you're, you are the owner of your car. So the number plate on your car is your personal data. The GPS is indirectly linked to you through the car and then you have the apps that you load on your telephone so you own the telephone but the apps are actually logging where you are by both gps and also location-based services and this is where we start saying okay how is this different if it's different from the the millennium bug that led to such panic mm. um you know on the, the just leading up to the year 2000 and i remember it myself because i I was sat in the data hall in CERN um, waiting for everything to crash, but of course it didn't. Um, the, the millennium bug was something that was wrong. It was something that we as humans hadn't anticipated that soon it would be the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And so that needed to be fixed to actually turn two digits into four digits. Now, with the GDPR, we are talking about here something that leads all the way back to human rights, 1948, the Human Rights De Declaration of Human Rights, 53, when it became um, encoded um, in the Council of Europe. And the GDPR, an upgrade on the directive of 95, is basically just encapsulating that and making it so that it works in our digital society that we're all a part of today. Yeah. Uh, so there is a lot of work to do because we've been living in a society where personal data, like P, personal identifying information, was the word for mm. definition of personal data. That's how most people think about it. Even IT people think about it in that way. And we've been storing personal data in that way as though it is personal identifying information and it is owned by an organization. But the GDPR has an enormous section that actually pertains to the rights of the data subject. And written between the lines all the way through that regulation, it talks about the rights of the data subject to know what's being collected on them and the right to um, to have it removed, erasure, the right to be forgotten, and a whole load of other stuff um, that basically states, not literally, but between the lines, that personal data belongs to the data subject. Yeah, but uh, the thing is, when I talk about the risks and making risk assessments in the companies, uh, what do you see for risk assessment? Because I talk to major, major government agencies who say this will be the same as pool. Nothing will happen. We can do how many breaches we want. We don't care because nothing will happen. We will never be audited. This will never be enforced. With the uh, GDPR, it actually has been written so it's got teeth and you would have read up that there are some penalties. Um, that can be, you know, handed out to organisations. It's it's up to four percent of annual turnover, um, or twenty million euro, whichever is the highest. Of course, it, there's actually two levels of fines, but then the fines are actually organ, um, calculated dependent upon other factors as well. Um, 
and there is a supervisory authority. So we have today, we have the Data Protection Authority. In UK, they have ICO, and in different countries, they have their own authority. But there will be supervisory authority that their role will be to enforce this. And they have to enforce this. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on GDPR in general. However, today we're going to talk about how to bridge the gap between tech and legal in GDPR. And that's basically what you do. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Traditionally, uh, the requirement for data protection has actually been in the realms of the legal guys. And when I read the draft version of the GDPR, which came out in 2012, I saw that the requirements that, that it was making when it comes to digitization of data, information security, and, and also an understanding of uh, how the business basically operates, you know, business functions and processes, that the, the, the traditional place of data protection compliance and privacy compliance uh, was not going to stay in the legal um, arm of an organization. Uh, it basically required a, a really um, strong collaboration between legal and the business, between legal and the business and IT and security. And if they don't do this, uh, then there's going to be um, a real problem where even if they do start working on it early, they will not start right. So that's basically what we specialize in, uh, at least, you know, like company privacy. We have a niche competence where we do bridge the gap um, between these different disciplines based upon our backgrounds. So the legal guys have to learn about the business and about IT and security. And the security and IT guys have to learn about the legal stuff and they need to learn to eat legal stuff for breakfast, you know, legal speak. George Orwell style. So um, that's where we are. So we have a quite a unique team of people doing this. Yeah, we're going to ask you a whole heap of questions uh, about that and tools and methods to, to how, how to do that. But first off, we've got to ask you about GDPR consulting. How does one do a requirement analysis when, when purchasing or hiring GDPR consultants? Well, first of all, I would check that they actually know what they're doing um you know I, I have i have a few i have a few like test questions when i'm first meeting with um potential consulting consultants and the one thing that i normally ask them is who owns personal data uh, because most consultants when they come from an it background they will tell you of course the controller owns personal data and of course the controller is actually the organization that collects personal data you know it could be uh, it could be Facebook, it could be uh, Mini Hata, it could be any, any, any legal entity that collects personal data as a controller. And they think that because they collect personal data, that they own personal data. And if they think in this way, they will do it wrong. And so that's the first question I ask them. Now, uh, another question I may ask is um, how, you know, if, you, if you're going to, how are you going to start if you're going to um, do a privacy program? And if they say they're going to start by doing a gap analysis, I will, I will again say no. Because if you try and do a gap, this is how I did it before in security. We used to go in and we used to do gap. But if you can imagine... The definition of personal data, first of all, all EU member states has changed from, you know, this very sort of like it's what people consider it to be personal identifying information to any data that's linked directly or indirectly to an a living person. 
That's the first thing. And the next thing, if you take Sweden, because Sweden is very special, they have two anomalies, you could say, from the directive. Um, one of them is the Missbruksregla. It translates in English to Misuse Act. And what they stated in the Swedish Data Protection Act is all unstructured data is exempt from the Data Protection Act, from pool. So that's the second thing. So that means all unstructured data in organizations, this could be data in emails, in Excel sheets, in Word documents, they are all exempt from pool today. And the third thing is that there is actually a clash, and it, this happens in a lot of countries, but it's more, more the case in Sweden than any other country, between the, uh, the Data Protection Act pool and Offentlichsprincipa, the Freedom of Information, the Freedom of Press Act here in Sweden. And what this means is that our personal identifying uh, number is public data. So if the consultant says they would do a gap, it means they are not aware of these three fundamental differences between where we are now and where we need to go in the future. No. Wow. That's quite contradictory to what we've been hearing. No, it's not, that. actually, to be honest with you. Yes, we say gap analysis, but we are expecting people to understand what, she, what Karen just mentioned. And this is, this is something that we harp on as well when we talk to our customers and other people, that it is a difference, massive difference mm -hmm. between pool and GDPR. Just those three things that just was mentioned. So, in fact, we, are, yeah, we, do, we do say do a gap analysis, but that is based on the fact that you understand the differences between the laws. And that is the key. That if, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't believe that enough people understand the differences between GDPR and Pool. If you talk to tech people, they still think of uh, columns in a database and nothing else. And we try and say, you can't think in a database in a structured manner anymore, but that's, yeah, so exactly. <laughs> so uh, Right, I, I have one more for you. Hmm? Um, risk, and uh, when I, I will hmm. ask them if they were to do, it's called a data data protection impact um, assessment. It's a privacy risk assessment uh, in, the, in the GDPR. I, I still I call it privacy impact assessment. Uh, if I will say to them, okay, you're going to do a privacy impact assessment. What are you going to do it on? If they tell me they're going to do it on an IT system, then I will again say, why start on an IT system? Because basically, I would want to start with the data asset. The data asset is a discrete, um, uh, it's, just, it's a discrete, if you sort of look, a data asset is defined by the purpose, the sifted. Why are we collecting this personal data? So in an HR database, for example, we are collecting, collecting personal data because we have to. We need to recruit people, uh, they need to do their job. Uh, so there's data there. So there you have a very discrete purpose, which is a great scope for your privacy impact assessments projects. And the way that I work is I work on this scope through uh, discrete steps uh, to get through to the, the output of privacy risk, which is potential harm to the data subject. But I would start doing the assessment by data asset, um, not by IT system. There's a difference. And if I would be called into... Um, uh, it's also a difference whether you are looking on cloud services, whether you're doing a risk assessment on a processor as opposed to a risk assessment on a controller, because a controller, you're actually doing the data, uh, the risk assessment on the data assets. 
and you look at the uh, the actual technology as a separate part of uh, the assessment. Um, if it's a processor, I am focusing on the actual um, IT systems, the cloud services, and also the legal agreements that they have with the controllers. If I do, if I were to purchase a um, a consultant to do this job for me, this actually the question that actually came up a couple of weeks ago when we had a GDPR seminar up in Stockholm. It was the quality of the service from that consultant in terms of if I do hire some an external party to help me out with my GDPR compliance, and we agree that this is this is all fine and done, and and the and the work has been done, and the consultant leaves the companies and moves on to the next business of of, of in hand. If that company that you or somebody else actually helped still doesn't uh, comply to GDPR in terms of uh, the job that was done wasn't good enough, what's what's the quality measures you can expect? Does, does a can a can a GDPR consultant be uh, held accountable for for the job they do, or is it just guidance? How, how does that work? Yeah, um, basically the way that the way that we work is that we document everything. So. We want to, with the GDPR, you will be penalized as an organization if you're not compliant. However, if you actually have the evidence to show that you have, you're on a journey to compliance or that you have tried your best and you are following industry best practices, then it's unlikely that you will be penalized. You will be warned and then you need to fix it. So when it comes to quality of consultant, I would want to have one that is a, a very, very top-level project manager, somebody that doesn't get um, scared away by scope, but knows how to scope things tightly. And we, we're sort of quite keen on agile. We like to keep things small uh, and work with small um, so that we don't get indigestion by eating the elephant all at once. And then we'd like to have everything documented in a consistent way uh, so that if there are issues later on, the client has evidence and then we always have a trail that they can lead back to us and we can come back in and um, yeah, fix it if we need to. Um, but clearly, we're going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to make mistakes. Okay. So anyway, this is actually a maturity um, leveling that you can do actually in information security. And I've actually started creating one for privacy too, to sort of say, if you are at zero, you have achieved this, this, and this, and one, level one, you've done this, two, you've done this. You know, it's like level one is that you've assigned budgets and you have a, you, you mm. have assigned ownership to the budget and you have a, you know, you decided to do a privacy program and that type of thing. And two is where you're doing your data discovery and whatever. And so I, I would say that one way to actually measure yourself is to have some sort of, not a complex maturity um matrix but just take something that you've like what I've done I've taken something that I'm familiar with from a domain that I am very experienced in and adapted it to what I think I could use it for so you may already have for your organization some sort of maturity modeling that you're using you put together a workshop with with your best guys in there and adapt it to your GDPR compliance uh, maturity yeah, but, but how do you how do you determine sort of liability in that sense? I mean, if if uh, if if my company were to hire a GDPR consultant, um, uh, how does one you know we're in that case we would be hiring a GDPR consultant to solve this for us. But if my company gets penalized because of a mistake 
would that uh, responsibility transfer to the consultant firm or how does that work? The consultant can't fix the problems or the problems of a, of a, of a client. They, you know, the, the client doesn't just call in one consultant to fix the problems. Uh, the, the, ultimately, the liability is on the client, it's on the controller. And they need to have the due diligence to ensure they bring in the qualified personnel to do the work. And no single consultant can do everything. They will be different competences for different work. Okay. I think I think our point of view. But what, is more what of I normally say, actually, when I come into a client, I have key roles that I want to be able to interface with. For example, one key role that I want to interface with when I come to a client is I want to have a private their private their architect guy, and I call them the privacy architect guy that they should make in their environment. Now, that privacy architect guy should understand all the technologies. They should have been with the company for years, and they should actually know what is being, what, which projects are going on at the moment, what has already happened, and they should basically know a lot of, you know, the, the basic DNA of the organization. And, and because these people, these interfacing people also um, are going to influence the success of any consultant that is brought in, however good they are. How do you feel about external uh, data protection officer or not? Yeah, well, it really depends upon, you know, the, there are some, there will be some um, type penalties for, you know, the DPO's uh, role if it's external. Um, but it depends upon the organization and the size of the organization. It, the, the DPO has to be, ex, has to be independent and it has to be reporting up to the highest level. So whether the DPO is internal or external, that's not different. There are some conversations going on about DPOs. If they're external, they can't be completely independent because they want the job and they want to keep the client happy uh, type thing. Um, but I think that there will be a new market uh, coming up. And it's like what we're talking about in privacy is a timeshare DPO. So that those organizations that are too small to have a full-time one, they can have a part-time one uh, that actually fulfills the um, requirements of the GDPR. And big organizations need to have their internal GDPO. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really have any opinions, to be honest, whether it's uh, internal or external. Both of them are going to have their advantages and disadvantages. We'll have to wait and see what happens in practice. So back to the uh, bridging the law and tech guys, because I'm super interested in that because that is, that is a hot topic. And I just, I just want to, what's, what's the magic bullet here? How, how do you do it? Because I, I find that to be the biggest uh, obstacle for, for a lot of companies, especially in Sweden, uh, to get uh, their units to, to talk to each other, not only tech to law, but I mean tech to tech and just, just in, in uh, internal um uh, internal people, how do you get them to actually start to talk to each other and understand what the other party is doing? What, right. What? The so far, the best I found as the you know as close to the magic bullet you're going to get is to. I actually ran a two day workshop for a large client. Uh, it was actually in Norway, and they what they did, they sent out a message to the organization to give the option for employees that were interested to learn about GDPR over two days. And they had 21 people turn up. And 21 people, they came from the legal arm, 
they came from finance, they came from document classification, they were guys also developing apps, uh, they were systems uh, responsible. These guys, uh, there was the security responsible, there was over 20 people in the same room that I was sat with for two days. And it wasn't just what I was explaining to them about the GDPR, it was the interactions that went on where they all started to understand each other. It was amazing. And I would say the kickstart in the organization is to get all these guys into the same room because they've never sat in the same room before. This is sort of the point I see when I talk to companies. Legal say, hair tech, follow the law. Done. Here's his consulting fee. <laughs> Goodbye and good luck. So, I mean, this is a bit because... Both sides can make it easy for themselves a bit. I think the tech can just push aside and say, legal, you have to tell us exactly what to do. Give us the system specifications, so to speak. And legal can say, follow the law. And now we're done. And I've faced a lot of companies that actually are in that standstill where, ah. <laughs> you know, um, the, the other point that's important apart from when you come to bridging the gap between these two, mm. you know, we've talked about this getting the people in the same room, is who owns the budget? Who's going to lead this? And whether it was a coincidence or not, but both in Sweden and in England, our first large clients were actually, um, the, the budget was held by guys that were um, qualified as a, a, with an LLM, a legal degree. Um, but they had been running doing compliance as their job for the last five, ten years or so. So these legal guys, they understood the complexities because they were educated in the legal profession, but they had been, they had been driving compliance. So they understood they had actually themselves bridged the gap. And when I said to them, why do you bring me in? Because I'm not a lawyer. And when I started, I didn't have a legal guy on the team like I do now. And they said, because the legal guys won't get this because there's too much business in it. And the business guys don't get the legal things or the IT things, or they might get a bit of IT. And the IT guys don't get the legal things. Although the, the problem with the compliance guys is they think they know it's a tick box approach, but it's not. So they'll get it wrong. He said, that's why I brought you in. So who leads it? Who has the budget? And who leads it? it needs to be someone that is able to pull these, these disciplines together and to get them talking to each other and to be, to be knowledgeable enough or educated in one way or the other, but somehow bridge the gap to be able to know when the legal guys are saying, yeah, okay, there's not much more you can do or whether it's bullshit and they need to be working more together. It needs to be a strong character leading it, basically. Uh, do you have any sort of concrete tips, uh, tools and other methods to, to, to bridge the gap other than putting people in the same room? It's training. It, it, it's not, you, it, there's no real, the magic bullet is people. <laughs> bridging the gap is about bridging the gap between people. So uh, it's, it's actually, but what I've done, for example, I became frustrated right at the beginning of the journey because I found that my security colleagues, the colleagues that I was working with before who were experts, really didn't get the privacy thing. They thought that security um, 
they thought that privacy was a part of security because the ISO 27002 control framework does have actually some privacy controls in there under compliance. There's about three, three of them or something about data protection. So it's not surprising that they were thinking that. Just getting these guys to understand that, yeah, sure, in the world of intellectual property, they can do their security thing and their security is what rules. In the world of privacy, when you're talking about personal data, security is needed for privacy. It's not the other way around. Without, without, without security, you can't have privacy, but security is a subset. So what I normally do is I, I have, um, I, I, I basically talk about a common language across the organization. So what is founded on the, um, Privacy is nothing new. There is actually a lowest common denominator in privacy globally that nobody really talks about. And that's the OECD privacy principles. There's eight of them. And it starts off with one, collection limitation principle. Collect only what's needed for the purpose and if necessary, get consent. Two, data quality. It's not security. We as, the, we as individuals, we move house sometimes, we change, change name. Personal data has to be kept up to date. Three, purpose specification. And this is what I use for scoping my privacy impact assessment projects. There has to be a purpose for the collection of personal data. If there is no purpose, you should not be collecting it. Four, use limitation. Within an organization, the use of personal data must be aligned to the specific purpose. So use of personal data is anything you do with data, personal data, including storage, archiving, online, offline, and backup. Five is uh, security safeguards. Now we get to the InfoSec stuff. It's everything about security that you need to do in order to comply with everything else, the other uh, seven principles. Six, individual participation principle. Now, this maps indirectly to the rights of the data subject in the GDPR. Seven, this openness principle. The client, the controller, has a responsibility to be completely open and transparent with the data subject. And the most, the most common um, medium that we're aware of today is the privacy notice. But of course, it will also pertain to the when the data subject rings up and they sort of say, I want to know what you're storing on me, if you're storing stuff on me. There has to be transparency and honesty in the communications. And finally, eight is the accountability principle. And you need to have the evidence and you need to do what is needed to be compliant with all the other seven principles. Now, when I'm working with an organization, I basically encourage to use these eight principles as a common privacy language globally, because it means that even when you have compliance across countries that have lower levels of requirements than what is needed in the, in the European Union, you can at least start the conversations between the legal teams at the lowest common denominators before everyone starts screaming at each other. Um, what is really important about these eight principles is that Data protection laws globally, where a country has a data protection law, are all based upon these eight principles. That's why I say they are the lowest common denominator in privacy globally. Now, when I'm talking to the legal guys in the EU, 
they tell me you should use the six principles, the principles in the GDPR. But the first two words of the first principle says you need to, it needs to be, uh, processing of data has to be lawful and fair. And I think, how the hell do I click that box? You know, it's just impossible. So this is why I, it's not that I trash these principles. They are based upon these eight principles, but these eight principles give you a common language that you can use. And this is what I use also when I'm in the workshop. So people, whether they're legal or whether they're not, they're able to talk to each other. In the previous podcast, we, we discussed why you should care about GDPR at all. And my argument was that someone in Europe will care. Uh, what is your what is your feeling about how how does Sweden add up to the rest of Europe in terms of how how far we have come in 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 our work to GDPR compliance or how we how we just you know how is Sweden compared to the rest of the, of the EU are 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 we are we ahead of the pack or in the middle or are we behind the eight ball what what's your, what's your feeling we're behind but I I wouldn't say it's through lack of caring some of it might be but basically. There's other countries that are far ahead of, far further ahead than what we are. So UK and Germany and even Italy is ahead of Sweden. Uh, the reason why goes back, you could go back to um, the Second World War when personal data was used to discriminate against Jews in Germany. So Germans are very sensitive about this and they are extremely strict about personal data that's collected and making sure that their citizens are um, protected in a way to never let this happen again. And Italy, of course, because they were working with Germany a little bit uh, during the Second World War. So again, they also have very strong data protection laws, stronger than what they need to today. And UK uh, has a very accurate implementation of the directive from 95. So Sweden is falling behind of reasons I already mentioned. What do you feel about the Swedish exceptions? You mentioned the Freedom of Information Act that are in direct conflict a bit in some senses with the mm. GDPR. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I find that pretty fascinating. <laughs> so, Yeah, freedom of information is necessary for a democratic society to function. It's needed for freedom of press so that uh, it's, you know, the, the newspapers are able to publish things that are not correct. So, uh, so without this, um, with the data protection here in Sweden, where what's happened is this freedom of press is more to protect a, a society from top-down dictatorship in some way. Um, but it's actually dropped to the floor in Sweden, so it means that no, so all personal data is actually public data. And what I think should should it should be is that freedom of information should become top down. It should protect the citizens from dictatorships, and it's necessary for a democratic society. But individuals, the citizens of a country, must be protected. Uh, their personal data must be protected as defined as long back as uh, 1948. That every country actually has um, some clash like this, um, so it's it's nothing strange. But Sweden is is exceptional. And Karen, I also understand that you've written a book, uh, a professional's guide to EU GDPR. Could you tell yes. us? Could you tell us a bit yeah. more about that? I, I've written it together with Philip Jonsson, who's the DPO of Sandvik. Uh, he was actually DPO of um, Seppo, Swedish secret police, before. So um, he, he's a legal guy, 
and he believes that uh, that we need to be surveyed for our own good to protect us against terrorists and I say that we need to be free. So we are completely opposite in our opinions of what um, you know privacy and uh, you know the government's role like in the US you know I'm a big Snowden fan for example and what he did. Uh, so that makes it a, that makes it that makes it interesting because he comes from a very legal um, uh, perspective, and I come in from more from a chit chat sort of perspective. So the idea is with the book is that it should be for somebody like me, before I became you know a privacy expert, um, to to actually understand all of this stuff. You know, it's it's basically I wrote a book in nine. 2009 it was published that was virtual shadows and that was purely about privacy and about what was happening it was about the surveillance society it was about internet of things and all the cool stuff that's actually happened now uh, so now this is more about practicalities and helping an organization uh, to comply with this regulation and to do it in a way that actually um, is you know, applicable. It's it's not difficult. It is difficult, but it should be doable. It shouldn't be too complex. We need to cut it down into small pieces and tackle it in that way. Um, yeah. So that's what that book is about. It's uh, it's more of a hands-on, how to do it book. I have a question a bit. Just your thoughts about what's happening internationally now with the Brexit, the snooping law in UK, with Donald Trump, and uh, the disbandment of privacy for any foreigner except you citizens. Uh, do you think we will have more isolated regions instead of a global region? Or Oh, well, Brexit, uh, UK, they will... The, the Information Commissioner has made it a quite strong declaration that they will be compliant with GDPR. So, uh, so I don't really see there being any difference there. They, how everything else works, I don't know. But as far as GDPR goes, UK will need to be compliant with that. Um, as as regards of Donald Trump, um, yeah, okay. I think that um, not that I think I, I don't really like the guy that much for obvious reasons because I'm a privacy advocate, and what he's doing is not very privacy nice. So um, we'll move on from that. <laughs> and on that bombshell, it's time for us to wrap up this episode of GDPR-podden. Tack så mycket för att ni har lyssnat. Vill ni diskutera avsnittet eller prata om GDPR i allmänhet? Använd gärna hashtaggen GDPR-podden i sociala medier. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Tack! Du har lyssnat på GDPR-podden. En podcast om den nya dataskyddsförordningen- Skicka gärna in frågor som du vill att vi ska ta upp i podden till GDPR-podden at citynetwork.se och använd gärna hashtaggen GDPR-podden i sociala medier.